0: Would you please grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Revelation. It's the very last book at the very end of your Bible. We're in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13 this morning. So as we're working our way through the book of Revelation, we're in the section where John, who's been commissioned by Jesus, sends seven letters to seven different churches in the area known as Asia Minor. We're on the sixth of seven letters, the church in Philadelphia. So our reading from the Word of God this morning is going to be Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. So hear the Word of the Lord this morning. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet... The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Almighty God and heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning. Would you open our eyes so that we might behold wondrous things from your word? And Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so, Lord, may we know and sense and hold to and cling to your word of truth, that it might give us life. And may we hold fast to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What discourages you? What causes you to be downcast? And despondent and discouraged what circumstances or situations in life can move you from being a glass half full perspective to a glass half empty now i don't have this problem because the glass is always half empty in my <laughs> world but i'm yet to meet someone who is emotionally invincible someone who lives in the emotional equivalent of clear skies Always sunny, low humidity, mid-70s. I've never met someone who always lives in that emotional state because we all have situations, circumstances that we go through that bring cloudy skies and a good chance of rain. And so what discourages you? Kids, perhaps school can be a source of discouragement for you. You know, life used to be all free time and frolicking outside in the backyards. And now you have to spend your days... Figuring out if Steve the squirrel collects 32 acorns and he eats 14, how many does he have left over for winter? And those can be very difficult problems that (laughs) discourage you. Or perhaps for some of us, financial circumstances can be a source of discouragement. That's where our glass gets very quickly half full to mostly empty. Because you're trying to be a good steward. You don't want Dave Ramsey to yell at you on his radio show. But the grocery bills this year are 20% more than they were last year. And so it's hard to keep the budget. Or perhaps you have a relational situation that is a source of discouragement. You have a relationship that used to be sweet. It was a source of joy for you. And now it's sour. And you wonder if it ever can be sweet again. Or maybe it's your spiritual life or your view of your spiritual status before God that most often discourages you. Maybe you have this struggle that this struggle should have been long done and over with. And yet here you are again, asking God to forgive you for the same sin once more perhaps you you look at the definition of a christian You're like i i can answer a question i know what a definition of a christian is but i don't always know if i'm a christian and you struggle with assurance and it discourages you what starts out as discouragement maybe kind of the the first level level one if allowed to grow and run its course can eventually become despair and despondency and when we are in the grips of despondency it can seem as if we are locked in a dungeon in Doubting Castle, and we are under the guard of giant despair. Now, If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, you know that's exactly how John Bunyan illustrates the situation of discouragement to despondency. Locked in a dungeon in Doubting Castle, under the guard of giant despair, and it doesn't seem like you can get out. And the reason I bring this up is because the church in Philadelphia was facing corporately what we often struggle with individually. Due to their circumstances and situations, it was beginning to seem as if the door to the dungeon in Doubting Castle had shut and locked and it was only a matter of time before giant despair did them in. Because if you were to interview one of the members or leaders of the church in Philadelphia and you were to ask them the question, what causes you as a church, as a member of this church, to be discouraged and despondent? Here's the answers they would give kind of from this text. First, we're discouraged because our church has little strength. If You look at Verse 8 of chapter three, Jesus says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little strength. Jesus, who knows the church, knows what's going on, knows their view of themselves. We have but little strength. They don't have the resources, the numbers to be of any benefit, they think, in their eyes, to be effective for the kingdom. And also we're discouraged because our church has had little success. We've scattered a lot of gospel seed, but we do not see much gospel fruit in Philadelphia. And furthermore, we're discouraged because it seems as if we have little security. The chaos of our culture, the threats and hostility of the powers that be that we're under the authority of, it all seems more than we're able to endure and withstand. In addition to all those, we're discouraged because we have such a lowly status in the eyes of the world. The Jews call us blasphemers because we say that Jesus is God, equal with the Father, And the Romans call us atheists because we will not say that Caesar's Lord. That's a title that only belongs to our Savior. And so we have such a lowly status. So their little strength, their little success, their little security, their lowly status is what is causing them to feel as if they're in the dungeon of Doubting Castle and the door is locked. But Jesus writes this letter because he is the lifter of the head of the downcast. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not quench or blow out a flickering flame on the smallest candle and so what jesus does is he gives them the key of encouragement and perspective and promise and he flings open the door of that doubting castle that they think they're locked in and he sets them free now, i don't know if you've been in a season of discouragement and you've been the recipient of a well-timed well-spoken word of encouragement but if you ever received one of those maybe in the form of a written letter you know how refreshing and replenishing that can be to your soul. When you're discouraged and someone whom you respect and value comes to you and gives you a well-timed word, it's like that wiltering flower has finally had some water on it or that cloudy day finally has the, the sunshine piercing through and landing on your skin. That's what this letter from Jesus is like to this church in Philadelphia. And so he speaks four words of encouragement to them because they are discouraged. The first word of encouragement that Jesus speaks is this, Church, what you lack in strength, you make up for in your savior. What you lack in strength, you make up for in your savior. And this word of encouragement makes us ask a good question. How should a Christian, how should a church measure its strength and ability? What metric system do we use to measure our strength and ability? Is it measured by the resources we have at our disposal? Is it determined by the amount of gifting and talent and charisma We have? Is it about the size of our congregation, or if we have a building or not, or whether the building is big or not? So often we use the world's measurement system to evaluate our strength. And when we don't measure up, we're discouraged and think, you know, we need to come up with a more innovative, effective way to increase our strength. We look for spiritual performance-enhancing drugs, as it were, because we don't we don't measure up and we need to be more effective. Well, when Jesus says in verse 8, I know that you have but little power. He is acknowledging, in a degree, to a degree, that the church considered in and of itself, according to the world's standards of measuring power, does not have what amounts to much of anything. And that may be a source of discouragement for the church, but it is not a source of discouragement to the church's head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, in effect, you could say, is in a sense encouraged by their discouragement over their lack of strength. That's a good place to be in one sense. Because we're going to see the church next week. The church in Laodicea is one who thinks they have all the resources, all the strength, and they're in a very spiritually dangerous position. You think you have little strength? It's good. It's a good place to be to a degree. Because when we are more aware of our weakness as an individual, as a church, we are more prone to rely on the strength of Jesus. That's what Jesus says to Paul. That's what Paul learned. When I am weak, then I know I am strong. Because I know not to rely on self but on my Savior. When we are aware of how insufficient we are in and of ourselves, guess what? The pump is primed to be more reliant on the all-sufficiency of Christ. There's always a danger when we think we have it all because then we, we miss the focus of what our aim should be, which is on Christ. So what does Jesus do in their discouragement? He fills this letter with declarations of who he is and promises of what he can do if we rely on him. So in verse 7, when Jesus opens this letter, he lifts up their eyes and says, look to me and be encouraged. So he reminds them that he is the Holy One. He is altogether unique in a class and category all by himself. Jesus has no peer or rival or equal because there is no one who can compare with him. And he's our Savior. He's the head of our church. And then Jesus reminds the church that not just he's the Holy One, but he's the true one. He is faithful and reliable and trustworthy. He cannot err. He never promises and then doesn't deliver. And so for the church to build your life on him, no matter how big the building may look, you are on the most solid, stable, unbreakable, unshakable foundation. All other ground is sinking sand. And then he says something that would have been most encouraging to them, but maybe a little confusing to us. He says that he has the key of David He opens doors that no one can shut and he shuts doors that no one can open. Now, keys in that day were symbols of authority and power. So keys were possessed by kings who governed kingdoms. They were the ones who were in charge. So think of that kind of ceremonial act we have some days where you give someone a key to the city. It doesn't mean anything really much anymore, but it used to mean that you're the one who has power and authority. And so to have the key of David means that Jesus is the one who is the recipient, the inheritor, the one who stands over all the promises that were given to King David in the Old Testament? And what were some of those promises? David, you will never lack a son who sits on the throne, and your kingdom will endure through all generations. You will have a kingdom that never ends. Now, David died. David's sons passed away. The kingdom crumbled. And yet here is Christ now, who has, in a sense, rebuilt and is rebuilding that true eternal kingdom, who sits on that true eternal throne, and he holds keys that open doors that no one can shut and shuts doors that no one can open. So this church may seem small and insignificant, and it seems like the religious leaders in the area, the political leaders in the area, they have the keys to the kingdom. They're the ones who are in charge of their destiny. They open doors and shut doors. And yet Jesus reminds them that the same hands that were pierced for their transgressions hold the keys that control their destiny, that are sovereign over all things. Well, then in verse eight, Jesus expands on the encouragement of this metaphor. Look at the beginning of verse eight. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now this open door, I think in one sense, refers to entrance into this kingdom that Jesus holds the keys to. So think of these believers. They've been ostracized socially. They've been kicked out probably of the local synagogue. And for many of them, they're probably formerly Jewish people who have now converted to Christ everything they knew before was that community and that synagogue and that place and now they've been kicked out. But Jesus says, you know the one person who has the one pair of keys that opens the one door that ultimately matters. The doors to the kingdom of heaven and they've been flung open for you and you're in that kingdom. But also this open door, I think, stands for, in a sense, service for the kingdom of God. Because the apostle Paul would use this frequently. For example, he's writing to the church in Colossae Colossae 4, he says, pray for this, guys. He says, pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. So who's the one who ultimately is responsible and in charge of where the seed goes and how it can be scattered and what fruit is grown? Well, it's Christ. And so in their self-assessment, they think we have little strength, we have little effectiveness, and yet what they lack in power and authority they more than make up for in their Savior who has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And so we need this reminder as much as they do. The greatness of a church, how is it measured? Well, it's not measured by its membership role. It's not measured by its budgetary prowess, but by the size of the Savior whom it worships and proclaims. That is how a church measures its strength and its greatness. A mega church without Christ at a center is just... A building that is of little benefit to anyone. But even a mini church where Christ is central is a force to be reckoned with. So let's remember that and be encouraged. Well, the second word of encouragement that Jesus gives them is this, church, what you lack in success, you more than make up for in faithfulness. What you lack in success, you more than make up for in faithfulness. And this is an important word for us to hear because we live, again, in a culture that not only measures strength differently than we should, but it measures value differently than we should. Value is measured by how successful, how efficient, how productive you are. So if a coach doesn't win, he's fired. If an athlete doesn't perform, he's benched or traded. If a performer doesn't bring a crowd, they're not booked later. On and on it goes. We live in a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately world. Show me the results. And that's what we value. So this mindset creeps into the church, and so we often determine the health of our Christian life or our church by the standard of success, production, results, efficiency, effectiveness. Have I volunteered or served or given enough? How many people have we led to Christ or counseled through an issue? Has our church grown? Has our budget grown? And so that's a danger. But don't don't get me wrong. I think healthy things do grow. There's a truth to that. And so I'm not trying to say that San Harbor should make a virtue out of being unsuccessful, okay? That's that's not my goal and ambition. We shouldn't measure the success of our church by how many people we offend and make angry and then leave this church, okay? That's, that's not our plan to make room in the sanctuary, okay? <laughs> what I'm saying is that success, as the world defines it, bigger, better, more results, more productivity is not what we aim for. It's not the measurement we should use because it is not what Christ values and commends in his church. Look at the second half of verse 8 in Revelation 3. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. And then jump down to the beginning of verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. You. So Jesus mentions three things that he commends and encourages the church about, despite their view of themselves. He says, you've kept my word, you've not denied my name, and you've patiently endured. What do those three things have in common? They are all different ways of describing faithfulness to Christ. They're all different ways of describing what Christ commends and values in the church. Faithfulness. So though the church in Philadelphia may be discouraged by their lack of results, Christ is greatly encouraged because he sees abounding faithfulness. He sees the spirit's fruit of faithfulness growing well on this tree in Philadelphia. So faithfulness, not successfulness, must be the aim of the Christian life and the ministry of the church. The best illustration I can think of is we should see ourselves like spiritual farmers. What do farmers do? They faithfully plow the ground. They faithfully till the soil. They faithfully scatter the seed, knowing all the while that there are multiple factors outside of their control. They cannot cause the sun to shine. They cannot cause the rain to come. And they cannot cause the crops to grow. They are absolutely dependent on something outside of themselves for those things to happen. And yet, they know their calling is to faithfulness, to plow, to till, and to plant. And that's what we're called to do because God alone is in charge of the results. God alone is the one who adds to the church. He is the one who builds the church. And you see this illustrated in verse 9. Look, they're with me. It's a very odd illustration. He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So the the first thing Christians would do in an area when they were evangelizing is they would go to the local Jewish synagogue. That was the first place. So you see Paul doing that over and over again in all his missionary journeys. And they would try to persuade the Jews from the Old Testament that Jesus is the long-awaited promised Messiah. Here's prophecy, here's fulfillment, here's prophecy, here's what Jesus did. And and sometimes they would be successful. Sometimes many would come. And you see Paul doing that at times. Other times it went very poorly, and they were kicked out and chased away or turned over to the authorities that be and even imprisoned. Well, it seems that here in Philadelphia, the message was not at all well received. In fact, It was one in which there probably was just only added to the the fuel of hostility towards them. And so no doubt this was greatly discouraging to the people, especially the Jewish converts who are part of this church, who are now cut off from the people and the place that they've known all their life. And so to encourage them, Jesus says, in effect, you were faithful. You did what I've called you to. You faithfully proclaimed my name. You held fast my word and you did not deny my name despite the hostility you faced. That's what I call you to leave the results up to me. One day, those whom you scattered seeds before, those whom you faithfully proclaim my name before, they will admit that you were right all along and they will come and acknowledge that I am the savior and that I am the head of the church. And you see this illustrated in the life of the apostle Paul. He was an example. He was one who was zealously persecuting, pursuing Christians. And then he acknowledged that Christ is the head of the church. And so he's saying, Just be faithful, continue to do what you're doing, and I will take care of the results. So what does faithfulness look like for us as a church? What are we to aim at? We are to keep holding fast to the authority of the word of Christ, despite the erosion of truth in the culture around us. That's faithfulness. We're to continue to proclaim that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And we keep doing that despite the erosion of authority all around us in the culture. And then we continue to impatiently endure, come what may, in culture, despite maybe the increasing intolerance and hostility going on around us. That's faithfulness. That's what Christ calls the church to. That's what he values and commends in the church. And guess what we should do with the results? We leave them in the Lord's hands. He will take care of the results. Well, the third encouraging word that Jesus speaks is this. What they lacked in security, they make up for in the promises that he gives to them. What they lack in security is they look around them, they make up for in the promises that he gives to them. So this church in Philadelphia was not known as it is, the modern Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. This was known as the city of earthquakes because in the year 17 AD, This city experienced a massive earthquake that decimated the society, the structures, economically. So many people left and were too afraid to come back because they didn't think that the city would be stable and structurally sound enough. And that's in part not just because they had this massive earthquake in their history, but because there was frequent earth tremors that they experienced on a somewhat regular basis. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced maybe an earthquake or even an earth tremor, they're very unsettling. When the ground beneath your feet start shaking, you kind of start to worry what's going on. I, I live in California for two years and I experienced one little tremor. That was all I needed to know that was not the place for me. <laughs> and so when the ground shakes, you do wonder, how sound and how secure, how stable is this around me? Well, what many residents of Philadelphia felt kind of structurally, the church was feeling spiritually. They were facing opposition. They were facing persecution. There was tribulation that was kind of brewing and growing in the society. And it made them feel as if the ground beneath their feet was shaking quite unstably. And so was their faith strong enough? Could it stand firm long enough to endure all that was coming their way? Or would it crumble? Well, let's put it in terms that a Floridian can understand. Sometimes when you look at your faith and then you measure it against the opposition you're facing from the world, your own temptations, The evil one who dwells in our midst, doesn't it sometimes seem like your faith has the durability of a trailer home and you're facing a category four and you're wondering, okay, when this comes, is this gonna stand up? Is this gonna endure? And you ask the question as you look at yourself and your resources and the strength of your faith, do do I have what it takes? And this is where we need the key of God's promises that he gives us to free us from the dungeon of discouragement and despondency. Look at one of the promises, In verse 10, it says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So the believers here know tribulation is here and it's coming, it's growing. And so, how are we going to fare in this? And Jesus says, I will keep you. Those sweet, precious words, I will keep you. Not, you can keep yourselves. He doesn't kind of, he's not giving him a pep talk, a motivational speech. He's saying, I will keep you. Now understand, this isn't a promise of ease and comfort. As if, now because you're a Christian, life is gonna go smooth and easy, and whenever it gets hard, he's gonna just zap you out of there. You know, Scotty, beam me up, tribulation's coming, he gets you out of there. That's not the nature of this promise. The nature of this promise is that no matter what hardship comes your way, Christ promises that he will hold you fast. Spiritually speaking, the truth that every believer has and can stand secure in is that no matter what comes our way, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Just as God in Egypt, when he sent the plagues, was able to discern between his people and the Egyptians and he kept them and sustained them and brought them out, so he can do that with his people. This is not a promise of, I'm going to take you out of there. This is a promise, of I'm going to sustain you in it and through it. So the only shelter that we have in this life that is perfectly secure, that is impeccably structurally sound, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Being in Christ is the safest place you can be in this world. You know, often talk about, especially when hurricanes come, like we just dealt with to a degree, you know, we talk about you know, hurricane impact windows and concrete block construction, all those, those are wonderful. They give a level of security. But in Christ, that is true, full, lasting security. Well, look at verse 12 to see another promise that Jesus holds out to them. Look at the beginning of verse 12. He says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. So in ancient architecture, a pillar was the piece of a building that gave it structural integrity. So you're, you're always concerned about the pillars because that's what was, was the load-bearing thing on a building. And so it's considered... Or structures that were well made to be that stable, immovable piece of a house. And so, because of that, pillars became a metaphor for permanence and security and stability. And when you think of permanence and security and stability, those are all things we value, right? When we have those things, we value them. When they have left us, we long for them. And so, as anyone knows who has had any life experience, finding Permanent permanence and secure security is about as easy as chasing after the wind and catching it. Because right when you think you have those things, it seems like they escape through your fingers. And there's something in life that reminds you, here we have no lasting city. Here there is no pillar that is impeccably structurally sound. And so what Jesus is saying is that that unsatisfied longing we all have for permanent permanence and secure security Because it cannot be satisfied in this world means that we were made for another world. It can only be satisfied in Christ. Only in him can we be residents of a city and dwell in a home where we are absolutely at rest because in him we are perfectly, immovably secure. So, Jesus, your longing for those things can only be found in me. So look to me because I'm coming soon and I'm making all things new. Well, finally... Jesus encourages them by saying, What you lack in status, you have in me because I give you a new name. What you lack in status, you're lowly in status, you make up for in me because I give you a new name. So look at the second half of verse 12 with me, the last promise that Jesus gives. He said, And I will write on him, the one who conquers, the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So biblically speaking, a name is more than just something you say to identify yourself so someone knows you from someone else, right? A name, biblically speaking at this time, spoke to the core of your identity. Your name was in one sense a way of measuring honor and value and status or lack thereof. And so for these believers, the Jews of that city had named them blasphemers because they had said that Jesus is God. The Romans of that city had named them atheists because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. They would only say Jesus is Lord. So they had been given names that were of lowly status, little honor. And yet Christ is saying, in my eyes, you have a name of great honor and great value. So Jesus is here promising that one day before the watching world in which they have such lowly status before, he is going to declare their true and new name their rightful status. He's going to say one day, dear world, I would like you to meet a child of my father, a resident of my city. I am theirs and they are mine because they bear my name. And the only reason that will ever happen is because the gospel is about the great name exchange. The gospel is one in which Christ came in one sense to be identified with our name so that we could be identified with his name. When Christ comes to John the Baptist to get baptized by him, John the Baptist is so confused. I should not baptize you. I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of your sandals. And Jesus said, it is fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. Now, John was baptizing people for repentance. And he sees Jesus who is sinless, spotless, pure. And he said, why should I baptize you? What Jesus is saying is, I need to be identified with all the sins of all the sinners that I am going to bear their judgment for. So when he's carrying the cross, in one sense, his name, our name is upon his shoulders. And everything associated with your name, all the sinfulness, all the selfishness, all the wrongs that you've done, are placed upon Christ. So that now, his name can be placed upon you. All its sinlessness, all its purity, all its perfection. The gospel is about a great name exchange. And so whatever status we have in the eyes of the world, in Christ, we have a new and true and better name. So when you're discouraged by your little strength, remember that you have a mighty savior. When you look at your spiritual fruitfulness and you don't see much and you're downcast by your little success, remember that Christ delights in faithfulness and he'll take care of the results. When the insecurities of life make you anxious, be encouraged that in Christ, you have stability and security because he will hold you fast. And even when we lack status in the eyes of the world, be encouraged that Christ has placed his name upon us. Would you turn with me as we end this sermon to page eight of your bulletin? And as this has been our custom and practice in Revelation, let's go with the, let's end with this responsive conclusion from the end of Revelation. I'll read the words in italics. So would you respond corporately with the words in bold? He who testifies to these things says, "Surely I am coming soon." Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly father, we know that often in this world, we will have trouble. And Lord, sometimes our trouble is in the form of our own spiritual discouragement and downcast state. And yet, Lord, we know that you are the lifter of the head of the downcast. And so, Lord, may we, in meditating upon your person and your promises and the future that we have in you and the security that we have in Christ, may we be encouraged, Lord. Help us to go forward in the strength and boldness of one who can never be separated from the love of God that is in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's sing about one of the sweetest promises we have in Christ. He will hold me fast. Would you stand with me? Let's turn to page 9 and 10. Let's sing this together.